So I've been waiting for this one for a little bit. Super excited to hear from these guys. But um, before we before we jump in and, and hear from them each, I want to just give uh, them a chance to tell you a little bit about themselves, what they do. Uh, if you've been with our podcast for a while, you've seen Neil. He's been on quite a few times, and he has given us much education uh, in the in the topic of critical theory and critical race theory. We have benefited from that. We love having him on. He's become a, a good friend. And so... Uh, Neil, just for those people who aren't familiar with you on the show, will you just give them a little bit about yourself? My name is Neil Shenvey. I am a homeschooling theoretical chemist. I uh, worked at Duke as a research scientist for about five years and then uh, quit my job to homeschool our four kids. My wife's a doctor at UNC, and I am an apologist. I've written a book called Why Believe. came out last summer, and I have a new book coming out this fall on critical theory which is uh, something I've been thinking about for about five to seven years now. So that should be exciting. That's awesome. I didn't even know you had that book coming out. I look forward to, to seeing that, yep. man. That's great. Uh, William, you mind <clears throat> giving us a little bit about yourself, man? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Clearly, I'm uh, I'm the uh, guest and playing on Neil's home court here <laughs> for the friendliness of the show. But my name is uh, William Wolf, and I spent over a decade living and working politics, well, living in D.C. and working in politics. I worked for three different members of Congress. I worked for an outside uh, grassroots activist organization. And I did four years in the Trump administration at the State Department and the Department of Defense. And during that time, I became increasingly convinced that Christians aren't thinking through politics very well these days, particularly from the evangelical perspective. This was made very clear, I think, during the 2016 election. I had a burden on my heart to go pursue additional uh, theological education so that I could bridge the gap between my political experience and what the Bible has to say about these most pressing issues. So I moved to the Southern Biological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, just recently completed my Master's of Divinity, and now I'm working on a Master's of Theology and uh, Philosophy and Theological Studies, uh, looking at doing a systematic theology of sort of what's the role and authorization of civil government. I'm also a regular writer at the Standing for Freedom Center out of Liberty University and a visiting fellow at the Center for Renewing America in uh, Washington, D.C. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, man. Shout out to, to LU in the house. We got that uh, connection there. So not completely unfriendly here. Um, but yeah, so man, before I, before I jump in with you guys, I just wanted to share a little bit kind of like on my heart, why I'm even putting this topic on this podcast and hopefully it'll, it'll set guys up and give a little context to this debate or dialogue that, that many people are having right now on this subject. And I think people could probably, um, relate to me in my own story. You know, I grew up just in American Christianity, uh, in the, in the charismatic branch. And so, um, my parents, you know, we our church really wasn't really into politics. You know, we may or may not have even voted they vote for president. I think they voted the Clinton election. They heard about the body count from somebody in the church. So they voted against the Clintons, and that was about it. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, our, our, our entire goal and focus was, you know, we, we want to get people saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, water baptized, go out and heal the sick and, and cast out devils, you know. Um, but not much in the way of cultural transformation in, um, in politics or public theology. Fast forward a little bit to Obergefell. Like, I think for many people, even in our church, that was a wake-up call 
of saying, man, what's really going on? And then, you know, you come to, to, to 2016, 2020, and everything is going haywire. And we're all like kind of in the dark. People we looked up to maybe three, four years ago in the evangelical world, institutions, the establishment sort of let us down. Like just by and large, person by person was like, man, how, how are they – how are they missing it this bad? And we're, we were sort of like almost groping in the darkness. And I think you'll appreciate, you, you'll remember this quote, uh, Neil, from uh, Robert Jastrow, uh, the astrophysicist who said, you know, that all these years of groping in darkness, scientists, you know, if they got over the edge of the cliff and, and found out that there was a beginning to the universe, only to find that there was a band of theologians sitting there waiting on them for centuries, you know. And for, for people like me, we were groping through the darkness, kind of, kind of got over the cliff to see a band of reformed theologians, <laughs> who were like the only ones that didn't seem to like completely miss the boat on these issues in the past few years. At least, at least the ones I became familiar with. And I was like, man, these guys have thought about this kind of sphere sovereignty. They've got you know the doctrine of lesser magistrates. They have a a public theology of government. They're not misusing Romans thirteen to make us do everything that the government's saying all the time in a in a kind of a messed up sort of fashion. So, I think for many of us, we found these guys, and then we discovered these terms like general equity, theonomy, and uh, theocratic libertarianism and now Christian nationalism. And it's like, they're giving answers where many of the people we've looked to over the past few years either have given terrible answers or have been silent on it. Now, what, what I've noticed is many, many of the quote unquote, big Eva people have reacted in kind of dismissive fashions and thoughtless ways to some of these proposals that have been put forth by some of these guys. So it's forcing people that are like searching to be like, man, it's 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 even confirming our distrust, and it kind of is throwing us in, like all in, sometimes even without thinking carefully on that side. Um, what I appreciate about you, Neil, is that you, I feel like you you think through things carefully. I feel like you try to be consistent, um, and I and I've always appreciated the way that you think through things. And I know you've critiqued this recent book on Christian nationalism, Stephen Wolf. Um, and I've read that critique. I thought it was thoughtful, much more thoughtful than many of the Big Eva folks, um, thankfully. But I did feel like it had the um, the outcome of putting maybe a wet blanket on the movement as a whole. And I, I know some people have felt like that and have responded to you um, in, in that kind of manner. So I wanted to bring both of you guys on here tonight because I think you represent these opposing perspectives and you do it well. And I wanted to, I wanted to hear from you just from my own self, but I, I think there's a lot of people out there like me that are looking for answers. We're undecided. I put a poll out on the podcast tonight saying, are you an advocate of Christian nationalism? Yes, no, unsure. The majority were unsure. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you guys could solve that for us tonight. I'm, I know that's a joke, but I, but I do think um, this is a great conversation to have and a great dialogue to really understand what are what are we saying here? What are we advocating? Is it biblical? Is this the way forward? Is it practical? Um, what do we do with this thing moving forward? Because we feel like, man, the secularism that we've been doing isn't working. So what are we what are we gonna do? So that's just our setup for the dialogue tonight. So Neil, I'm gonna give you the first ten minutes, man. Uh, talk to us about why you're why you're not 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 feeling this uh, Christian nationalism thing. Sure, thank you, Seth. So uh, to begin with, let me make a, a big qualification here. I'm not against everything that gets called Christian nationalism. 
I repeat, I'm not opposed to everything that gets labeled a Christian nationalism. For some people, Christian nationalism just means the laws of the U.S. should be based on Christian moral principles. If that's how you're defining Christian nationalism, then I agree with it. I mean, all laws legislate morality, and since Christianity is objectively true, then all laws ought to be based on the objectively true Christian vision of morality. I think all Christians should agree with that. Now, exactly how we cash that out in actual laws, people differ, but I think that basic framework is correct. So what I would say is I'm not opposed to everything that gets called Christian nationalism, but I'm hesitant about particularly the term Christian nationalism. Now, let me give you four reasons why. So first, the term Christian nationalism is too broad. Second, the term is too tainted by bad associations. Third, the term encompasses some really bad beliefs. And fourth, the term plays directly into the hands of progressives. So there's four reasons. Let me go through them quickly. So first, one of the main goals of communicating, of using language, is being clear. So we use labels like Christian or evangelical because they're meaningful and they're historically well-defined. That does not really seem to be the case with the term Christian nationalism. If you look at Google Trends, I looked at this afternoon, you'll see that almost no one searched for the term Christian nationalism before 2019. It's literally like four years old in popular parlance. And when I've asked people for answers to the question, well, what is Christian nationalism? They give answers that are all over the map. So one person might use Christian nationalism to mean basing our laws on Christian moral principles. And another might mean that nationalism getting critical race theory in schools and drag queen story hour in libraries. I think William wants to do that. And actually, I, I do too, <laughs> but they'd call that Christian nationalism. Another person like Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism, he means electing a Christian prince who will decide official Christian doctrine for the nation and punish heretics. That's in his book. And if the, so if the term Christian nationalism means a hundred different things to a hundred different people, then at the very least, we'll need to define it very carefully before using it, right? We can't just throw it out there. That's number one. Number two, most of the people who hear the phrase Christian nationalism have very negative associations with it. So last October, 2022, there was a Pew survey showed that only about half of Americans have ever heard the phrase Christian nationalism. But of those people that had, they mostly had very unfavorable impressions of it, what it meant. When they were asked to define Christian nationalism in their own words, the biggest category of people associated it with Christian rule, theocracy, Christian-based laws and policies. The second biggest category associated the term with negative attitudes like fascist, cultish, misogynistic. The third category was a tie at 3% between white supremacy, racism, and bigotry, and then finally wanting the U.S. to be a Christian nation with Christian people. That's kind of a positive one. So if you look at those top four responses, there's about a five-to-one ratio of people who associate the term Christian nationalism with fascism, racism, bigotry, and theocracy, and then you know, to one person who thinks it's something reasonably good. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that you have to reject these ideas because they're unpopular. It's not what I'm saying. There are lots of Christian ideas that are unpopular, and who cares? They're true. But it's very imprudent to brand your movement with a very unpopular label that's only a few years old, that people associate it with racism and theocracy. It would be like starting a movement call and calling it Christian fascism. Then you're like, well, why does no one want to join my movement? Well, the answer is you picked a terrible label that people think you're saying something that you may not agree with. So again, it's a, it's a negative association that I think is very imprudent to choose. 
Here's the question, though. Are those associations completely unfair and preposterous? And I'd say here, the third reason, unfortunately, no. So some, my third point is that some self-identified Christian nationalists define Christianism to encompass views with, uh, which other Christians might, would strongly reject. For instance, on January 25th, a few months ago, or a month ago, I pointed out that everyone, including self-identified Christian nationalists, have to figure out what to do with sort of edge cases. You know, what biblical principles should be codified into law? I, I asked rhetorically, I mean, are you willing to bite the bullet and say that Hindu temples should be made illegal? Now, 200,000 views later, I discovered that quite a few self-identified Christian nationalist accounts on Twitter with large followings really did think that Christian that Hindu temples should be illegal. But there's more. So after that conversation, a self-identified Christian fascist, that was his actual self-identification, he posted this. Europeans didn't immigrate. We conquered. We put the native demon worshipers to the sword and took the land for Christ. The Lord took most of the rest by plague. But since the invasion of the 60s, the life of the white man has gotten immensely worse, and you know it. Now, look, that's a rando on Twitter. He's just some random guy in an anonymous account. No one knows who he is. Okay, that's fine. There are lots of insane people on Twitter. But here's the thing. In response to that crazy comment, Gab CEO Andrew Torba wrote, go off, king. Then when I asked him, well, wait a minute, how far are you willing to take this? Should you outlaw synagogues? He began to like tweets that said, yes, synagogues too should be, should be outlawed. And I said, wait, are you really saying that? And he replied with a reaction gift that was like, so stay tuned or something like that, like just being coy. Now, now, keep, now, why is that important for Christian nationalism? In 2022, Torba published a book entitled Christian Nationalism, A Biblical Guide for Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations. And that book currently has over 900 ratings on Amazon. It's by far the most popular book promoting Christian nationalism today. So he's not some fringe figure. He has 300,000 followers, has written a very popular book. So he's a major part of this movement. Now, again, let me be clear. I'm not saying that if you happen to identify as a Christian nationalist, then you are a racist or you're an anti-Semite or you must want a theocracy. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if you embrace this label, then some of the most prominent, loudest people who identify as Christian nationalists themselves have these views that you probably reject. So at a minimum, you have to be very clear when you define Christian nationalism and draw some very hard lines between yourself and the people that you strongly disagree with. Again, and finally, now, why do I care? <laughs> because for five years now, and I'll just say, I, I frankly don't that much. For the last, I've been talking really intensely about getting critical theory out of the church and out of our culture. It's theological poison. But about a year ago, people began telling me I need to stop wasting my time on critical theory because the real threat to the church was Christian nationalism. So that's why I began reading these books and say, well, is this a real problem? And so because people were dismissing my criticism of critical theory and saying, well, we have a, a real problem, Christian nationalism. So that, this is why I care. They're using this movement or this broad label to distract us from a much bigger problem. There are people that are actively trying to inject critical theory into the church, and we have to get rid of that. Now, my question to people that want to use this label is, why would you give them ammunition? You're, you're, you're handing them a club so that they can beat you over the head with it. So I would, I would I'm thinking this is going to be a disaster if, if there's a movement here that you all share this label 
in, in, a, in a year, some CNN reporter is going to stick a microphone in the face of Andrew Torbett and say, how do you feel about Jewish people? And he's going to say, well, Christian nationalists say, and here's what he's going to, he's going to label your movement. So I think what we should do right now as Christians is lock arms in opposing critical theory and culture rather than thinking about these really far off fantasies about having a godlike Christian prince one day. I mean, we can, we can think about that eventually, but for now we have a much bigger problem on our hands. And so I've suggested, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying drop your ideas, I'm not saying get rid of them, I'm rejecting them. I'm just saying maybe make sure to draw a line between what you believe and what these other people believe. And I suggested using a different term. Use a term like Christian federalism. Uh, my friend Josh Dawes, that who William knows, wrote a great thread on Christian nationalism and Christian federalism. Just kind of contrasts these two movements and talks about how Christian federalism doesn't have the sort of negative connotations of Christian nationalism. So that's my so my big take is this. I'm and I'm pleading with self-identified Christian nationalists to do just two things. One, define your terms extremely clearly. So define the label Christian nationalism very clearly. And then number two, say explicitly and clearly what you believe about things like racism, interracial marriage, women's right to vote, freedom of religion, the First Amendment, democracy, and other issues. Because these are issues that actually do divide some people underneath the big tent of Christian nationalism. And I don't want to see your theology slip when you begin to sort of sidle up against these guys and say, hey, they're not so bad after all. I think we want to draw out clear lines in the sand and say, we're not crossing this line. And don't keep quiet just because you're afraid you'll lose allies. We have to think primarily theologically first and only secondarily politically. So don't sacrifice your theology on the altar of politics. So that's 10 minutes. Right. Thanks, Neil. Is that good? Thanks, All right. Yeah, man. That's, you. You're great. You're great. And then, uh, William, why don't you tell us, man, why you are pro? Yeah. Well, thanks. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry I forgot to wear my pearl necklace, so I couldn't clutch it while Neil painted this deep and dark, disturbing picture of, uh, of Christian nationalism. And, you know, I just, it's interesting. This is a, a point I, I would make in general, but Neil just perfectly embodied it, which Neil just in almost all of his efforts there ran to the extreme fringes of, of this conversation and tried to center what could be considered the most concerning or outlandish. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised, but quite frankly, I'm a little disappointed that he went ahead and led off with that random Twitter uh, comment from the Christian fascists because Neil knows that's not what the vast majority of people who are advocating for Christian nationalism believes, but the method he used in his rhetoric just now centers that in everybody's minds. So let's let's take the term on here. I actually think the term is helpful. In Yoram Hazoni's book, uh, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, he says, today many avoid the term Christian nationalist as if it were, were in some way dishonorable. But before the Second World War, that is what most of nationalist. The Democratic president, Franklin Roosevelt, of whom I'm no particular fan, became famous for describing himself politically as a Christian and as a Democrat. Christian nationalism is the history of America, whether we've used that term exactly or not. And we've used very similar terms in the past. Now, Neil points to this probably Google Ngram look at the use of the terminology, but the reality is if you start looking at the way that the term was being sort of popular in academic circles, that was happening well before 2019. And here's another problem with, with Neil's point is that we're now uh, creating a club and then handing it to the enemy. 
No, what has happened has in the run up to the 2016 election and post Trump in particular, a group of committed secular progressive scholars, uh, not so much in the critical race theory world, uh, though I would argue that they do other sorts of critical theory, critical gender theory, they're, they're secular sociologists. They started trying to use the club of the term Christian nationalism. But here's where it's fundamentally different from critical theory. Critical theory is rotten root to fruit, right? But when these guys started trying to use this term Christian nationalism, like Andrew, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, to describe what is essentially the uh, basic political commitments, moral commitments of your average Christian, we realized, well, wait a minute. Well, I'm a Christian nationalist then. If I believe that there's only two genders, if I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, if I believe that unborn life should be protected in the womb, if I have to close our southern border and limit our immigration policies such that it benefits our American citizens, regardless of the color of any American citizen in consideration, in fact, our border towns, which are predominantly Hispanic, are the ones who are most hurt by the fact that our border is wide open. And so, whoops, just not going to uh, stand there. And so um, you realize when you read Taking America Back for God or Jesus and John Wayne or The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart, or you look at Andrew Seidel and his work on the First Amendment, or Robert P. Jones, each one of these uh, academic, secular, progressive scholars conjured the club of Christian nationalism and tried to use it to beat Americans in the public square. And yet we realized that this was actually a potentially useful term that has maybe been surfaced for a while that we can take and use as a rallying cry for a movement and for a moment. And here's the moment that we're facing in America today. Christians realize that something is wrong. So much of the Christian nationalism conversation is also predicated on the fact that classical liberalism, which is essentially sort of the governing ideology that the American uh, you know, structure, federal structure was built upon, has failed in substantial ways. Some people say it's failed altogether and they would, uh, you know, call themselves post liberals. Uh, and we, we see a lot of leading Christian voices, even once you move from the secular progressive academics, even into Christian political voices, Russell Moore, Tim Keller, Paul Miller, they're big fans of liberalism. And they don't seem to be able to admit that the fruit of liberalism is things like the 2015 Obergefell decision, which you mentioned, that the fruit of liberalism is the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, the 1990s Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. And arguably, we could we could claim that the fruit of a nationalism in the United States with the election of Donald Trump is the is the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. And so we see that something is wrong in America. Something's off in our governing ideology. We clearly are failing to promote the common good, to protect the most innocent among us, to defend virtue and morality in the public square. You know, Neil said that not everything that is called Christian nationalism he would disagree with, and that he could concede that the desire to have laws that are based on Christian morality is a form of Christian nationalism that he would sign up with. Well, that's, that's a massive concession, and I'm happy to take it. And I think that, by and large, most Christian nationalists are right in that camp. So if we want to think of who are the actual Christian nationalists out there, I would say 95% of them fall in squarely into that bucket of what Neil says is acceptable, and yet he spent the vast majority of his 10 minutes trying to draw all of our attention to the remaining few percentage of those who would say things that we don't like. And uh, I'm not tracking my time. How much do I got left? You got about four minutes. 
All right, great. This is great. So here's the deal. Let's talk about terminology here, right? So do we stop using the word complementarian? Because complementarianism is is lambasted as being abusive, demeaning of women? No, because complementarianism, or quite frankly, biblical patriarchy, is a biblical way of understanding the God-created differences in the sexes and our roles in the church and in society and in the home. And just because Kristen Dumay goes out there or Beth Allison Barr goes out there and or Amy Berg goes out there and says that this is somehow uh, this is harmful, intrinsically harmful to women. Are we going to back away from that term? Well, absolutely not. And in fact, you know, one of the terms that Neil referenced that he thinks is easily identifiable is the term evangelical. I mean, we continue to have a, a, a heated debate over who counts as an evangelical. We have people these days identifying as evangelicals who don't hold to any of the basic orthodox Christian doctrines and beliefs on things like the nature of men and women, on marriage, on sex, etc., and so that's why we have over time come up with different statements like the Nashville statement to augment, say, the Nicene Creed, because we have people out there who say, well, I'm an, I, I affirm Nicene Orthodoxy, but I support gay marriage. OK, hold up, buddy. We have a problem. <laughs> and so, you know, we don't jettison labels just because any random unpalatable uh, character could look at that label and say, I support that label. We don't all stop being Republicans because random racists like David Duke maybe from time to time pop up and identify with the Republican Party. No, we, we thoughtfully, carefully, maturely, and as adults treat them as the absolute fringe cases that they are, and we go on with our day. But as it comes to Christian nationalism, I do agree with Neil that definitions are important. And, you know, there's two main pieces there to Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolf approaches it from a very theoretical and, and considers the nation qua nation as a, as a nation that acts in the totality of its national action with its civil laws and social customs to acquire the good of that nation, both its earthly and heavenly goods. And then he augments it by putting Christian in there and everything that he would understand that that carries over, particularly from the Protestant Reformed tradition. I've sought to define Christian nationalism personally uh, in a much more, I'd say, practical sense as I've gone about this. Here's a definition that I like and that I will continue to advocate for in general that I think captures some of the uh, some of the key pieces of it here. And let me just read it for you here, and then I think my time will be about out. So let me find it. I've got it written down in a paper here. Essentially, I view that Christian nationalism is a political ideology. That's how I would view it. That has three main components to it from a Christian perspective. First of all, it honors Christ as king. We have Christ or chaos when it comes to the public square, when it comes to morality, when it comes to truth. So it honors Christ as king. And I would draw that from places like Psalm 2, Philippians 2. You know, Christ is ruling and reigning and all things have been put under his feet. So it honors Christ as king. That's critical. And I would argue that there's no such thing as a secular government. A secular government is a myth because a government will either worship something or it will worship Christ. It will recognize something or it will recognize Christ or God is the authority under which it's accountable. Two, Christian nationalism inspires the citizens of a particular nation with a greater and more committed affection, their own neighbor citizens over against the global order. This is something we're dealing with very regularly in our day and age today, which is that we're told even as Christians that we should prioritize the globe 
even over the person next door to us. I think Christian nationalism helps correct that and helps us recognize that we need to have a right ordering of our loves and affections and to dispense with our priorities and our resources to those who are most near to us and most dear to us. And then third, it seeks to either infuse and grow or to preserve, advance, and protect Christian morality as the basis of your laws, social customs, civic society, also imagination. So that's sort of a threefold way of, I would understand Christian nationalism, which some critics of Christian nationalism, like Paul Miller, have more or less affirmed, although they disagree with it, saying that Christian nationalism in the American context is recognizing that America has historically been a Christian nation and the government in America should take steps to keep it that way. So pulling all that back, I would say that Christian nationalism in general is a theory that can be applied across all nations. We want all nations to kiss the sun and to grow into their fullness of who they are as a nation. I would argue that the Philippines, were they to experience revival and become a Christian nation, we would understand that as grace restores nature, they become even more Filipino in their essence to become Christian and Philippine citizens. And so they haven't had that history, but it could happen there. Here in America, we've had that history. We're losing it, but it could happen again. So I would say America was a Christian nation, is a slipping Christian nation, and should be a Christian nation again. And I guess that's why I'm a Christian nationalist. All right. Well, thank you for that, William. Uh, Neil, I'm going to give you five minutes here, man, to respond and whatever else you want to do with that. Got it. So, yeah, I, that's great. I mean, I think we do agree on many things. Um, what I would say, number one, is that uh, William said I'm looking at the extreme fringes of the movement, but I emphasize that I'm citing the number one most popular book on Christian nationalism that's out there today. It's three times more popular than uh, Stephen Wolf's book, according to Amazon. And so Torch figure, like it or not, he's not. You might say, well, 95% of Christian nationalists disagree with him. Well, maybe, but he's the one who's writing the book. And then you say, well, you pointed out you like Stephen Wolf's book a lot, but Stephen Wolf, Wolf also has views that I think a lot of Christian nationalists, as you described them, would strongly disagree with. So in his book, for example, he writes on page 391, arch heretics who are publicly persistent in their damnable error and actively seek to convince others of this error to subvert the established church, to denounce its ministers, or to instigate rebellion against magistrates can be justly put to death. And he goes on in many places in his book talking about how the Christian prince can adorn his uh, residence with Christian symbols. His crosses were once painted on royal armor. His military militia, which defends a Christian people and their church, can be designated soldiers of Christ, page 296, 297. Um, he, he calls the prince uh, in godlike terms. So th there are all these things in his book. It's the number two most popular book on Christian nationalism. That you're claiming that, well, 95% of Christian nationalists just want to end Drag Queen Story Hour. That may be true, but as long as the movement is piloting these books that are, that are advancing ideas that average person does not approve of or does not side with, we have to question whether this term can be can sustain such a huge, broad movement. So there'll be a lot of internal tension. Um, the other thing that you said was that you pointed out that scholars have, progressive scholars have taken the term Christian nationalism and used it to bash Christians over the head. Christians who just want to do things like firm traditional marriage and things like that. I agree they have. And I, I just think it's very unwise then to say, no, we, we exa you're exactly right. That's who we are. Uh, when, it, when they're going to turn there, if I'm not going to turn to Torba and say, oh, you're like him, you believe what he does because you don't. 
But they're going to. The, wait until election year when the media gets a hold of Torba and pulls out quotes from Wolf's book. We saw it on Twitter just last year with Christians looking at Wolf's book and saying, you guys believe this stuff? And some Christian nationalists would say, yeah, we do. But others would say, no, we don't believe that. That's going to be a big problem if you're actually going to try to win elections. But again, I'm my big point is I don't I'm not your coach. I'm not a self-identified Christian nationalist. So if you want to latch onto this term, you can. I just think it's very unwise. My bigger concern personally is not whether your movement succeeds or not, but that you have to draw lines. So you talked about how we you know we don't jettison labels like evangelical or or complementarianism just because people bash us over the heads with it and, and use and apply it to really terrible things that we disagree with. That's right. We hold on to terms, but when we realize it's not communicating our ideas clearly anymore, when we realize we're getting bashed over the heads, then we find a better term. So this is why, for example, the word the term social justice has been used by Christians in the past to, to as a synonym for biblical justice. It really has. The ESV study Bible is a section heading about social justice from Leviticus. They're not woke. They're describing laws about you know stoning witches and caring for the poor. You know, both of them are social justice laws in, in the Bible. That said, I have counseled people stop using that phrase because it's been co-opted by the radical left. I'm being very consistent here. Phrases that have lost utility and no longer communicate what we want to communicate should be changed. And I just think that, so this is a, one of those cases where we should stop using the term. The other thing I'd say is that I'm worried about our theology as it begins to drift. What happened with the woke church is they would not stop using terms like social justice, even when people gently pointed out, hey, there's some really bad ideas under the umbrella of social justice. You have to draw some lines right now so it doesn't affect your theology. They circled the wagons. They would not do it. And because of that, their theology did erode. So I'm saying in the same way, I've seen it on Twitter. People adopt this label, they adopt this tribal identity, and then they begin to be attracted to some of these really bad ideas, I'd say. So you suggested, well, we have like church councils, we have statements like the Nashville Statement to draw clear lines. Yes and amen. I would love it if you got together with other identified, self-identified Christian nationalists and you hammered out a clear document saying this is what we mean. We are not going to take away women's right to vote. We are for interracial marriage. We do not believe that we should have an ethnostate. We are against that. Uh, we, we believe in religious liberty. We affirm the Baptist faith and message statement about how uh, the ideal is a free church and a free society where everyone can express religious beliefs without civil interference. That's the BFM in actually 1925 even. They were already saying that, that we, we, we affirm a freedom of religion in the, in the essentially in the modern sense. You can go back and look at the old document. My point is that, yes, I would love it if Christian nationalists had that kind of document. And if you did that, it'd be easy to point to it and say, that's what I believe, not what Torba believes. That would be excellent. I, I would be happy. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> All right, William, uh, can you give us a five-minute response, man? If you want to grow in your confidence in knowing what you believe and why you believe it, if you want to ground your faith in biblical Christianity and step into who God has called you to be, I want to tell you about a great program put on by Impact 360, and it's called Propel. 
Propel is a one-week transformational leadership and discipleship experience where high school students gather together to be grounded in a biblical worldview as they learn how to follow Jesus, have a godly influence, learn how to disciple their peers, and boldly live out their faith in their daily lives. So they're having two sessions this summer. The first one is June 19th through the 25th, and the second one is June 26th through July 2nd. These programs fill up really quickly, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. So we'll put the link below if you're interested in looking into it, and we'll see you this summer. Yes, but first, in order to do so and to be fair to Neil, I need to know what term Neil uses. Neil, do you call your, do you happily call yourself a classical liberal? Are you an advocate? Let's put an ism on it. Are you an advocate of classical liberalism? Yeah, I would say I would largely agree with classical liberalism, but I would define it not in terms of, because that's also a broad term. I would say that I would want uh, a baseline Christian morality um, that would uh, that would be preferential. So because there is a real morality, it's objective and it's grounded in God's truth. Um, so what I would say is, but this way, I would not use the label Christian feder- a nationalism. But if you had something like Christian federalism, where I could define it as like uh, I would say something like um, a Christian uh, grounded morality, public morality enshrined in law, but that respects people's constitutional rights. That's, I would, yeah, absolutely. I would call myself a Christian federalist. I'm fine with that because it would not expose me to saying, oh, you're like Andrew Torba. I'm not. Uh, but in uh, c- c- Congress reclaiming my time, what I no, but first I, I was trying to hear if classical liberalism, forgetting whatever we would advocate for differently is fair, because here's what I'm trying to say. And I'm just going to assume mm-hmm. you're an advocate of classical liberalism is that all the questions just posed to me about the need to define the term, the disassociate, to, to draw lines, considering beliefs that are beyond the pale, my, and, and theological slippage. And I'm going to come back to this because this is very important. My goodness, the burden on those who who proclaim to be advocates of classical liberalism rests tenfold on them today. When classical liberalism is giving us transvestite strippers in front of children, when classical liberalism gave us a reign of bloody terror of Roe v. Wade, under which we saw over 60 plus million unborn children slaughtered, when classical liberalism has given us straight up pornography in our elementary school bookshelves, when classical liberalism has driven God out of the public square, driven God out of the public schools, and has instead replaced it with a woke, anti-God, anti-human, anti-life agenda. And and let's get back to the theological slippage. We have people who call themselves classical liberals, like Neil does, who are writing books in which they say, how hard is it to argue that fundamentalist Christians and drag queens can both use the library together or, or equally have access to it? It's not hard to say. In fact, it's actually preferential. Drag queens are people too. David French's of the world, the Tim Kellers who string out tweet threads where they can't even come to bring themselves to say that the Bible has something to say about how to end abortion, just that abortion is bad. Well, how about you make it illegal, you know, make thou shall not murder. And so all these questions that Neil in this current sort of popular current moment in which I think that critics of Christian nationalism are sort of surfing on the waves of waves of the regime and progressive approved rhetoric against this. 
I would turn all these questions around on them and say, how could you possibly identify yourself with classical liberalism when we look out on the wreckage of our society today, all the evils that are being perpetuated in the name of the First Amendment, in the name of freedom of speech? And so, frankly, as somebody who's looking for a path forward, trying to chart a better and different future than the one that we're dealing with now, I think that people like Neil have to answer all these questions to a much greater degree than anybody like I have to answer be proposing sort of a replacement system to the failed system that we all live under currently. And, and that, that point about theological slippage, again, I cannot imagine how you could call yourself a Christian and say from a Christian theological perspective that it is ideal that men who are putting on clown makeup and appropriating womanhood get a chance to go into a public space and read books to children perpetuating their perversion. And yet one of the leading and loudest critics of Christian nationalism, Paul Miller, and one of the leading and loudest advocates of classical liberalism, a term that Neil happily associates with, is doing that. So yes, I agree that we've seen theological slippage with the woke movement, but we've seen, I'd say, some horrific foundation eroding theological slippage from those who are in the public square right now defending the status quo. And there's a lot that could be said about this and the way we we could unpack how we viewed national loyalties and the role of Christianity in the public square in the post-World War II era. But look, I mean, I guess my bottom line is, yes, these are questions that we all have to wrestle with, but, but frankly, you know, that's what comes with every term. And so there's, I just find nothing unique, nothing particularly, you know, compelling about Neil's case that we need to wrestle with these questions when all of those questions are sitting heavy on the shoulders of the ideological political tribe that he's a part of right now. And they don't seem to have any answers for. All right. Well, thank you for that, William. Neil, you want to respond to that, man? Yeah. So I think, uh, I would agree. William said, you know, we if you talk about defining terms and uh, setting boundaries, and we everyone faces that problem. I agree. This is why when you say what, how would you identify? I was like, well, I guess I identify as a classical liberal with some caveats. Well, what are those? I'd be happy to spell it out. I do think that Drag Queen Story Hour violates obvious public indecency standards. So actually, you should read my review. I'm sure both of you have of a Wolf's book, Stephen Wolf's book. I have an entire section devoted to criticisms of classical liberalism. So the point is, I agree, William, with you that there's a theological slippage. There's a danger there. There's a danger of associating with these labels that have given us really bad policy. I agree. But that's why I've devoted, what, five, a thousand words, 2,000 words to it, just one part of my essay saying, here's where I reject the, the places where certain classical liberals have gone with their ideology. Uh, so the, I, I, I embrace your critique. I, I applaud it and say, by all means, let's all do this. Let's reexamine the labels we use. And if people start associating class, if you, they say, oh, you're a classical liberal, you must be for a drag queen story hour. I will say, no, I am not. I part ways here with guys like David French. I think it's a bad thing and we should get rid of it. So the point is, I, I am being I'm trying to be consistent here in the same way I'm calling Christian nationalists to be careful with their terms, to be to resist, to be aware of theological slippage, to uh, put themselves in conversation with those who disagree with them and hear their side of the story. I would say exactly the same thing 
for self-identified classical liberals. And again, I've tried to do that in my writing. But uh, the reason you don't see more of it is because I am just not that into politics. I, my, if you look on my website, there may be two articles on this topic. I've devoted far more of my time to theology and to critical theory. But if you press me on, well, what do you feel about abortion? What do you feel about these issues? I'll talk about it. And I'll say this is where I, I do not agree. I mean, like you said, Roe versus Wade. Not only, interestingly, that was overturned on a legal uh, on legal grounds, saying it didn't actually, we didn't find that right in the Constitution. So maybe a better term for myself would be something like a, a constitutional conservative. I don't know. But my point is, I am not, I actually am not wedded to a label. I would rather look at my views one at a time, piece by piece, and then fit it into a larger framework. But if you say to me, hey, classical liberals was a bad term, I'm like, fine, I'll dispense with it. I'm totally okay with doing that because I care more about the ideas and where they're headed than about the labels we use. Like, this is consistent again. I thought this a critical theory too. Um, anything else? I think I, I think I largely agree with what William said. And I do, again, read my essay. I think Christian nationalism, one of the one of the positives of it and of Wolf's book was that it raises very good critiques of classical liberals, which I think are needed. I think a lot of classical liberals today, frankly, are flabby. They've gotten used, they're coasting along on fumes from the last few centuries rather than defending their views uh, rigorously and biblically. I think we need more of that. All right. Well, thank you, Neil. Uh, William? Well, well, great. Then I would just I would suggest that I have defanged all of Neil's criticism. Neil is now agreeing with me that terminology must always be defined. That there are issues, uh, you know, in all camps, and just because that there are you know there are unsavory figures with any given label or term doesn't necessarily mean that we throw it overboard. Although I will say Neil Neil just said something that I think is is potently dangerous in terms of how we approach linguistics and rhetoric and terms and words. Neil said, you know, if, if you come to me and tell me that this is classical liberalism is problematic, I'll throw it overboard. Well, well what is that? An infinite regress of relabeling? We, we can't do that. That's life works, right? We have, to, we have to plant a flag. You know, we have to put our shields up and charge into battle on some things, right? We can't, we, we don't, we can't get rid, again, of the word complementarian. Although, again, as I, as I even propose that, I know that there are people who don't like that term. And funnily enough, complementarian was a term that evangelicals sort of cooked up in the last few decades, and now everybody's on board with it. And so I actually want to make another point here. I, I've been noodling on this, and I'd like to write on it, and that's the power of your political imagination. You know, how can you see a different future than, or what is the different future that you can see than the one that we live in today? And I would argue that your ability to imagine a future in which a term like Christian nationalism is, is a rallying cry and is a a gravity, a center for how Christians understand how they advocate for our beliefs and morality in the public square, uh, it would be an ideal future. And, and I can see that future back in history and see how terminology has changed over time and that there are new movements that come up with new terms and they get debated and they get pressed and they get pulled and they, you know, they get put through the fire and then some of them survive and come out and then some of them don't, and then some of them get co-opted over time. And so you, you can't just chuck any term overboard because there will be potentially negative connotations with it and or will be accrued to it over time. And that's that I would argue is fundamentally an, an unsustainable way to approach life and theology. You know, so that's just that's just that's one point there on the power of political imagination on the importance of fighting 
for terms. And so really then essentially between me and Neil, we're just engaging, I guess, in what you could call sort of uh, standpoint epistemological line drawing. <laughs> you know, Neil says, hey, look at, I'm going to draw these lines and say nationalism falls outside of the lines of what's a term that can be reclaimed, a term that we can use, you know, but maybe Christian federalism falls within the lines. Well, let me tell you, the left isn't going to stop calling you a fascist no matter what you call yourself. You know, what happens in two years from now when Christian federalism, a term that's picked up all calls, savory people associated with it. So then what, Neil's going to move on to Christian localism, you know, Christian statism, you know, what's it going to be? And so um, I just, I don't think you can operate like that. And so I think we are at the beginning of an effort to recover classical reform, political theology. And I, you know, I, I don't think we even have necessarily time to get, but I would, I would actually, there are many theological avenues of argument in terms of what is and isn't acceptable from a Christian moral basis. Neil says, yeah, I'm happy to have laws based on Christian morality. Well, brother, that is a huge subject. Is it appropriate, you know, to privilege religions in to privilege one religion over the other in the public square? Well, Neil would actually concede that it is. I believe I'm, I see sounds like he's open to conceding that we should privilege Christianity. So then the question is not does one religion get some preference or other, but to what extent and to what extent and then we're having a conversation about prudential uh, applications of a theological principle that we agree on. And that's where things start to get tricky and where I think we are miles down the road from that. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll close off with that. Lots more thoughts there. <laughs> no, thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all. Um going through that. I, <clears throat> I have a couple more questions if you have just a little bit more time here. Sure. Um, yeah, I think there's probably more agreement here than I even anticipated coming into it, which is, which is good, but there's also some areas I think where there, you know, if we had longer, we could discuss some of those distinctions, but there's, this is a quote, um, Neil from a Gary North book, you're probably familiar with him. This is from like 89. And he said, what we find in the final decades of the second millennium after the birth of Jesus Christ is a growing realization on both sides of the political ceasefire line that the traditional ideological synthesis of political pluralism is collapsing. What we are witnessing is a slow but sure breakdown of the political ceasefire between humanism and Christianity. On each side, the defenders of the compromised system can no longer hold their own troops in line. Guerrilla skirmishes are breaking out continually. The humanists are beginning to act like humanists, and a tiny handful of Christians are beginning to act like Christians. And then he goes on to say, democratic pluralism becomes a convenient excuse for not being able to recommend anything in particular since democratic pluralism is the ultimate pay-as-you-go social theory. It is devoid of moral content. It is all procedure, but it is acceptable to humanists who much prefer to see Christians clinging either to discard 10-year-old liberal fad or to some hopeless program to, quote, make the public schools moral again. It keeps Christians quiet and it keeps them harmless. Um, in, in your thought, Neil, because I think some of the, the pushback that comes at you sometimes is, man, you're, you are trying to kind of prop up the status quo and the status quo is this like neutral, secular, naked public square. And I think what many of us are feeling like, man, I, I don't know that that whole myth of neutrality thing might actually be true. And we might actually have to have a Christian um, essence to the state. Do you do you kind of disagree with Gary? Like, is there because you talk about theology and that being your main thing theologically, do you have much thoughts on that whole topic or do you kind of agree in there? 
Well, I don't think there's a neutral public square. I don't think the government is religiously neutral. It can't be. It has to take moral all laws encode up morality. And if if moral if Christianity is true, then the only real morality is Christian morality. Other moralities are false. And so any law that is actually just and actually moral is rooted, but it has to be rooted in the real morality, which is Christian morality. So that way, all wait. Laws, can I? I just laws, have to. Yeah, can yeah. I ask real quick? Yeah, Neil, how is that different from Wolf's main syllogism? You, you almost just repeated Wolf's main syllogism, just with with sort of like you know laws and morality instead of his wording of the government promoting the true religion. That was almost. No, a, because, do you see what I'm saying? That was almost exact syllogism like his. No, because with the end of government is to promote the earthly and heavenly good of its citizens. Right. All, what I said was that. All actually just laws are rooted in Christian morality. I didn't say which laws we should have. This is a big difference. And what I've said is completely consistent with basically all conservative Christian political thought that I know of. I mean, people like Jonathan Lehman and Andrew Walker, who were, would probably say something some more close than, than Wolf would definitely. But they would affirm what I just said. They would totally. But the question, that's a practical question. The real question that I had, I think, is a, a huge dividing line. Between uh, between the middle of Christian nationalists right now is does the government have the authority to legally enforce the first table of the Ten Commandments, meaning have no other gods before me, make no graven images, that table, those five commands. Can the government make laws to say make idolatry illegal? That's a, that's a huge question right now. And so I would just say I did not when I'm saying all just laws are grounded in Christian morality. That's true. I did not say whether we should have laws like that. So that's a great question to start with would be, do you believe that the government has the authority to enforce, say, say uh, anti-blasphemy laws? It's, it's a, it's, that's a right. They have right to do that. Yeah. Would you respond to that, William? Yeah. I mean, this is, again, it's like, it's, it's this classic pivot to the fringe case to try to, um, try to make like, uh, you know, like a, a salacious sounding comment here. So I, I just want to recognize what Neil's doing and then address it. So first of all, historically, you know, the majority of Christians for the last four or 500 years who have wrestled with the role and the authorization of the civil magistrate under God have viewed that in a self-consciously Christian nation, that it is appropriate to have laws that uh, penalize certain blasphemous you know, expressions in the public square. However, people need to recognize that that penalty is for outward and public behavior. It is not for inward beliefs. Nobody is arguing that the government under God, as you can deduce from the scripture, has the ability or the authority to, it doesn't have the ability, period, and so it certainly doesn't have the authority to reach into a man's heart or mind and, and, and compel him to confess something he doesn't believe or to stop him internally from professing all the blasphemies that he does so desires, that his wicked heart would so desire. He can, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the government doesn't have the ability to stop the fool from saying that. However, once we order our lives together in the public sphere, the realm of the good that the civil magistrate is supposed to commend or the evil that he's supposed to punish is made visible in the physical sphere. And so if there is somebody that is 
you know, and we recognize if you if you are to agree that Christianity is the one true religion, the laws that are truly just must be based on Christian morality. And if we're seeking a vision of the common good that is in line with a with a Christian anthropology, then we would recognize that there must be limits on public blasphemy, or we're going to erode our society. Now, where are those limits? That's something that's been debated right now here in the United States of America. There essentially are no limits. But are you telling me, I'd be interested in hearing this from Neil. Neil, are you saying that a small town in, uh, say, Alabama, who uh, at the local town level uh, is dealing with a billboard that is seeking to put up a sign that essentially, we'll just say blasphemes God and fill in the blank with the most objectionable term you want to put in there, and that they are compelled to grant the permit to that billboard to display you know, right outside of town this public blasphemy, and that in no way is within the realm of the civil magistrate to decide this is not conducive for the, the moral and spiritual well-being of our external life here together. Yeah, I think it, the Constitution, the First Amendment, does guarantee people that right. If it's a public, we're talking about public billboard that's accessible to like. So if a if a Jewish person wants to put a billboard up that says uh, Jesus is not God, you're saying that the that a town should is, wouldn't that violate the First Amendment if the town said you can't put that billboard up or just said Islam is true? So well, I'm you're actually saying asking, it's a fringe case. I'm asking a theological. No, I'm, I'm asking question, a question about not a First Amendment question. You, but you, you're talking about a small town in the U.S. Because what, what I would say is that I'm actually and this, I'm actually a, a pragmatic person when it comes to all these issues. I don't think the New Testament gives us a model for what government should look like. It just that was not in their mind of the authors. We can go back to the Old Testament and say, well, how does that uh, you know current governments? But I would just say, actually, I think it's a lot of it. All of it is prudential. So I would say in this country and actually around the world, in fact, I think we have prudentially realized that a government which has the power to enforce blasphemy laws is one that can, in principle, turn on Christians and enforce anti-Christian laws. So I, prudentially, I'm not saying it's sinful for a government. If a Christian is found a colony on Mars and by themselves and want to have anti-blasphemy laws, I don't think it's sinful for them to have those. But I think prudentially, in a a nation that's populated by largely unregenerate non-Christians, I think we definitely don't want the government to have that kind of power. And more than that, we have a constitution. I think it's good to work within the framework of the constitution because otherwise you're dealing with massive overhaul of society and instability, which frankly, the reformers were very mindful of. They were very cautious about what the kind of revolutionary recommendations they had. But I want to go back to, you said this is a fringe case again, but Seth cited Gary North and Seth, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a theonomist, correct? I think so. Yeah. And he would have definitely wanted blasphemy, right? Because that's Old Testament. It's Old Testament law. You can't blaspheme God's name. You'd be stoned. So he would have wanted anti-blasphemy laws in principle, correct? Um, that could be correct. I'm not positive um, if he would advocate for that in particular or not. But but I guess strict theonomists, you would think that, yeah. Yeah. So my only William might know is, better than me, so you could weigh in on that about Gary. But sorry, go ahead, Neil. My only point was that well, it's I got not, two responses to Neil when he's done. Okay, okay. go ahead. Neil, I'm just sorry. pointing out this is not this is not a fringe question. That there are people adamantly saying we need that for their actual theonomists who want to port the entire Old Testament law to the modern American context. They really do in various ways, and that would include things like stoning for blasphemy. 
so that's not a hypothetical question. There are people I can point. There are major authors like Gary North, and uh, I think Rush Dooney probably is another one who, who wanted that, who advocated for that. So for tearing it like this is a fringe thing. I don't know. I, I would just want this is why I think it's important for when I say draw theological lines. This is an important one. Do we or do we not enforce the first table? Is it is it wrong or right? Is it good or bad? Is it, is it prudential or not? So there's the kind of questions that are not fringe and saying, oh, they're just fringe. You're trying to scare us. I, I'm not. This is a practical question. As soon as you have any kind of platform, you have to say, well, what are we running on? Are we going to uphold the First Amendment and point out the best face and message says that we have a right, that's the BFM 2000 and 1025, says that the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of a religion without interference by civil power. So if you say, no, you don't have the right to externally, in your behavior, put up billboards propagating your religious opinions, that's for all people, then you have to say, I, de- I deny that part of the BFM. The BFM affirms that we that we should have that. So with the Constitution says okay. it, the BFM says it, it's a, fi- a fringe issue. All right, William? Uh- all right. So first of all, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm very confident that the Baptist faith and message is in no way contradictory to the fact that when Utah joined the union, we told the Mormons that they could, they had to stop practicing polygamy. That was a restriction. So clearly, the phrasing of the Baptist faith and message is not totalitizing in its all-encompassing nature. No Baptist is arguing that it was inappropriate to tell the Mormons that despite it being a tenet of their religious faith, that in order to join the United States of America, they had to quit externally practicing polygamy. So the Baptist faith and message does not support polygamy. The Baptist faith and message does not support any number of different satanic rituals and performances that could be performed under the auspice of a religious expression you know, in the United States of America. So on that point, Neil's uh, interpretation of the Baptist faith and message is flawed. Second, Neil, it keeps slipping in and out of questions of theology, prudence, and practical application. Neil just conceded, unless I heard him wrong, Neil conceded that from a theological perspective, from what we would say is an appropriate understanding of Scripture, that were Christians to populate Mars, say, you know, the, the Mayflower to Mars, thank you, you know, Elon Musk, and when they land there, that they decide that within their civil laws, they are going to institute any number of different blasphemy laws prohibiting different expressions of blasphemy, that Neil is saying that, you know what, guys, I can't look at the Bible and tell you that you're in sin or you're wrong to do this. But not only do we, you know, that's just a future hypothetical consideration. Look back over the history of the United States. Not First of all, when Neil says, you know, I'm committed to the First Amendment, well, which First Amendment? The one that was initially envisioned by our founders or the one that's been reinterpreted, particularly over the last century and applied to all the states? We had establishments of religion in the United States of America in a variety of different states until, I believe, the mid-1800s. And so, you know, which, which First Amendment are we talking about here? So you have theological considerations that I think Neil is missing the mark on. You have practical considerations historically in which the First Amendment doesn't do everything Neil is trying to argue that it does. And then you have, you know, sort of a future envisioning of a society, sort of blank slate society of three Christians washed up on a desert island or we colonize Mars. What is scripture saying is in bounds and out of bounds? And again, I want to be very clear. The scripture is very clear that it's out of bounds that the government, the civil authority, the magistrate, the one who rules the people in the civil sphere 
has any ability to compel the conscience. That is what the Christian tradition, the Protestant tradition, has been so crystal clear on. Uh, but in terms of any number of different uh, expressions of blasphemy, that actually is arguably something that is theologically permissible. But here's why I say it's a fringe and it's a scare tactic, because that's not where the conversation is about Christian nationalism is right now. And so I'll have to also mention this. Neil said, any government that can public blast can punish blasphemy can turn it back on Christians. To which I ask, Neil, what government are you living under right now? The government that we live under right now pu- punishes all sorts of different blasphemy, right? right? Blasphemy is sort of, you know, something that cannot be uttered against the highest power of the land. Well, to say that Leah Thomas is William Thomas, to say that William Thomas is a man in some in some areas of our nation is a blasphemous, you know, declaration that's punished job loss. Just think back to California in 2008 when there was uh, that tech guy, I think with Mozilla and Firefox, he donated $1,000 to Prop 8, which was the California California effort to re-enshrine into the California Constitution a traditional understanding of marriage. Well, that was an act of blasphemy in California and in the tech world, and he job. So first of all, blasphemy laws are in full land currently. They're enforced primarily against Christians who dissent from the secular, transgender, and LGBT social dogmas. So again, Neil's just envisioning things that quite frankly are the sort of inverse of what we're dealing with in our society currently. And the Christian nationalist effort right now, I can't think of a single Christian nationalist who's like, hey, I've got 25 priorities and the first one, blasphemy. Not even close. We're talking about closing our border, protecting our citizens, renewing an American consensus that we're one nation under God. And you know what? You know, I'll let the people on Mars deal with the blasphemy question if they ever get to it. Uh, Neil, can you give us a two-minute response, brother? Sure. So, William, you mentioned uh, Utah entering the union, but again, that's not relevant to the BFM because it says the right to form and propagate opinions, not actions like marriage. And so we're talking about things like billboards. And so the BFM says at the minimum that you have the right to propagate your religion, not to get married to eight wives or get married to a man if you're a man. So again, a billboard is not an opinion, Neil. A public billboard Uh, is not a personal opinion. No, no, it's not personal opinion. Uh, Yeah, I understand that. But it says the right, here's the BFM 1925, that we have the right to form and propagate propagate opinions in the sphere of religion. That's an action externally. It's not an internal belief in your heart. You're propagating them. You're forming an opinion and propagating it in public. You're not whispering it in a dark room. So that's saying it's not relevant to polygamy anyway. And the BFM is affirming that. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Absolutely. I disagree with that. That's not correct. You think you think the BFM is okay with not permitting, say, Jews to to spread Judaism? No. What does it mean? It's what is the right to form public opinions? What does that mean? Well, that we would have to would have to ask the drafters of the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message. But my point is that that propagation of that opinion certainly comes with restrictions. Now, you're saying that you think you can clearly see the difference between a public billboard and the practice of polygamy. Maybe, but we would have to ask the drafters of that document what they meant by it, because you were trying to weaponize that language in a totalitizing way that I don't think was appropriate to the point you were making. Well, I was making a point about billboards. It really is just the words, like saying words or printing words. And I think the BFM and certainly Constitution gives you the right to print words and propagate opinions. And I, I think, and again, I, I, you said, well, we have blasphemy laws today against Christians. 
Well, all the more reason to say we shouldn't have those. <laughs> we, I, I agree with that. These are weaponized, and but I think we can be consistent and say, hey, we're not going to promote blasphemy laws on either side. That's a bad thing. We want an actual free conscience and a free, free to propagate and form opinions without punishment. So I think a consistent. Neil, answer, how is it a bad thing? This is what this is really important. I think for you that you need to clarify. It, yeah. You keep saying it's a bad thing. You're saying it's theological. So you're saying that something that is theologically permissible is a bad thing. Sure. It's a, when I say bad, it means not prudential. It's not wise. So, for example, uh, if I said like Stephen Wolf in his book, which you've read, well, bad is a, a statement of the moral character of something. Yeah, because not all moral, not all immoral things have to be illegal. It, we know that's obvious. I mean, lust is immoral, but it can't. It shouldn't be illegal. It's an interstate. Uh, or like really small acts that are actual acts of sin, but we can't make them illegal. That's very imprudent. If you live in a police state, you could make things like, you know, spitting on the sidewalk illegal and throw you in jail for that. But that would be, Im is it, Im Im I mean, that's a bad example. It's immoral, but you could think of small immoral actions that it's still very imprudent and unwise to have. I mean, Augustine Aquinas thought you could legalize brothels because it would be crazy. It'd be imprudent in their mind. They were wrong. But they thought it would be imprudent to have laws against brothels, which is totally wrong. But the point is, there's a long tradition of Christians arguing over what immoral acts are, are moral, but should still be legal. That's a huge category. Well, there are lots of immoral things sure. that are still legal. Well, sure. There's definitely – look, Neil, there's no doubt that there's a debate between what sins should be crimes. I was just trying to, to make sure the language you're using because you said bad. So I was trying to figure out what you meant by bad, which sounds like imprudent, I guess. I no, don't not, view those not as No, I mean, I mean, I don't mean sinful. It's not sinful to have a law that says, you know, uh, I, even I would say even anti-blasphemy laws are not sinful, but it could be very imprudent. And even anti-brothel laws, you have Aquinas and Augustine arguing are imprudent. They're not sinful. But I, I think the point is this. Well, well they're wrong. Really is a, yeah, I, no, I totally agree. I think it's it's not imprudent. It's very prudent. So my only point is so it really just gets into the line drawing thing. It's like where yes. where where are your sensibilities, right? And my, my point is that I actually think I think that Sean is right in terms of you sort of being a Sorry, defender of the status quo because you have sensibilities that are attuned to defending the status quo. Where it's like you're you're comfortable to say you know Aquinas was wrong about drawing the line on brothels, but you know you know. Heaven forbid we draw the line anywhere along the First Amendment, but quite frankly, we do draw the line around the First Amendment. Not you know, you're not actually allowed to print anything you want to print. You're not allowed to say anything you want to say unless you're arguing for an interpretation of the First Amendment that I'm not familiar with, which is that there are no restrictions whatsoever on speech in the public civil society. You know, I mean, the, the classic sort of silly example is you're not allowed to say fire in a you're not allowed to shout fire in a crowded theater. So I, as long as you can concede that there are limits on the First Amendment, well, then we're having a whole different conversation. Yeah, no, I, again, in my essay, I talk about limits that we have currently on the First Amendment. I agree. But what's what I'm asking, I, it's all about line drawing. I completely agree. But one of those lines is a basic one. Should we enforce the first table? And Christian nationalists need to decide prudentially, either prudentially or theoretically, because some Christians will say, I'm confident we should enforce it. Other Christians will say, I'm confident we shouldn't enforce the first table, the first table of the commandments. Uh, now, that's a that's a theoretical question, and I personally am undecided. That said, there's also prudential questions that are equally pressing, and I think Christian nationalists need to have some kind of consensus on this. And it, my concern, again, is that you do have this amalgam of people who are 
you say they're fringe, but these are major figures who are saying things like we should outlaw Hindu temples or synagogues. Now, you might say they're just fringe. Okay, then at least just make it clear, hey, we don't believe that. Say that clearly. We don't believe we don't believe we actually want to affirm the Constitution and the First Amendment and not just the war and course interpretation. But, you know, 1925, the Baptist faith and message saying the same thing. So my only point is just, yes, it's about line drawing, but please draw some lines. So but OK, so, Neil, you you think that there is um, there is you cannot envision a false religion that should not have the right to have a public place of worship in the United States. Every single false religion totally has that right, regardless of what they believe, um, regardless of maybe what they practice. Oh, no, it should be like human sacrifice. It was in my essay. Again, I mentioned this. Aztec religion requires human sacrifice. You can't have it in the U.S. Sorry. <laughs> so we draw all these lines all the time. That, mm-hmm. Actually, that was one of the things I liked about Wolf's book. He points out- Do, Doesn't, doesn't saying, Hindu, Hinduism, Hinduism has a, a practice, I believe it's called Sati, is that, uh, I might be getting it wrong, where there's the traditional practice of the widow being burned alive with her dead husband. Right, Sati, yeah, absolutely, and they outlawed it. The British outlawed it, and the, there's a the debate. And they, it, was, it was anyway. The point is, yes. So, but th- I totally agree, and I say this in my review of Wolf's book. There is limitation placed on freedom of religion and expression. Absolutely, there has to be. But where are the lines? I, I, so, as a total pragmatist, in a sense, I have I can say, hey, it's all about listening to both sides and finding a prudential answer that people will live with and not revolt, because. That's a that's again, that was in the reform tradition. That was a big issue. You don't want the government to become totally destabilized and everyone just revolts and there's anarchy. That said, uh, at some point, you're going to have to reconcile with attentions within the movement by people who really do want to have Old Testament civil law imposed on the U.S. and to get rid of the Constitution. If you're going to build a well, that's not the Christian nationalist movement. Nobody I, I can't think of a single uh, self-professed Christian nationalist who is arguing for a one for one theonomic institution of old Testament. even even the brothers our friends out in Moscow, general equity theonomists they're not mm-hmm. one theonomist i, I can't th- nowhere in wolf's book and you know, actually I have a lot of critiques of stephen wolf's book will you will you find him arguing that we just jettison the constitution so again nobody is is arguing for that and again i would just turn it right back on you and say Hey, well, when are the classical liberals going to come out and say that, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply to transvestite strippers gyrating in front of five-year-olds at brunch? I'm waiting for that. Yep. They should. But we're, I mean, I, hey, I agree with you there. I would love to have a classical liberal, uh, a Christian classical liberal, a Christian conservative classical liberal statement of belief. Where do we draw the lines? I am all for that. But Seth invited me to talk about Christian nationalism. So, but hey, like I said, I'm trying to be consistent here. I 100% agree. There can be theological drift on both parties under both labels. Labels can be in flux. We choose the best one to communicate our message. We offer caveats when needed. All of that stuff, and I'm applying it to both sides. So I, you're not. I, I, I'm hoping to be consistent here. Thank you. Hey, uh, last, I'll give you one more minute, William, to just give us your final thought here, brother, before we before I wrap it up. Oh man, one minute. One minute. <laughs> Look, I think it's I think it's a it's a really important conversation to be having. And I, again, I just have to say, people are going to watch this, and this is what people are going to say. They're going to say, "I can't believe you guys spent so much time talking about blasphemy laws." And honestly, I feel that way too. I find it to be an unproductive use of this conversation. And here's why: because the conversation about Christian nationalism is not going away. These academics, particularly on the secular side of things, have stumbled upon sort of a grift, 
They're not going to stop writing books about Christian nationalism. So we need to be thoughtful and we need to be serious and we need to equip the people in the pews and the people in the public square to to wrestle with this term Christian nationalism. And when you read those books, they're not talking about blasphemy laws. They're talking about defending traditional marriage. They're talking about protecting, you know, they're talking about gender complementarity. They're talking about your your stance on whether you're pro-life or not. And so when you take any of these surveys taking America back for God, you know, you are going to find yourself being a Christian nationalist. And in fact, NPR actually just released a, a report on a new survey by these secular academics showing that support for Christian nationalism is growing within the Republican Party. At a, at a most simplistic baseline, Christian nationalism is a rallying cry for the renewal of the consensus that America was a Christian nation, is a Christian nation, and should be a Christian nation. That laws must be founded on Christian morality to be just, to be uh, to be useful, to be beneficial for our common good. And we need to recover a robust Protestant reform theological understanding of the role of the magistrate in the civil society in the civil society and not be, you know, scared off by the post-war consensus or scared off by fear-mongering academics who want to, you know, want to paint us as, you know, as hood-wearing clan members. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter all this effort. They are going to do that. And so I don't think we can engage in an infinite regress of labels. I think we've landed on a good one. Shields wall, shield walls up. Let's press forward. Well, thank you, man. Th- thank you guys for coming on here. It's very engaging. I, I really learned a lot from both of you on this. And um, I th- it sounds like, Neil, you could get on board with a, a good bulk of that outside of the label and with the clear, like, uh, here's our <laughs> here's our marching orders. Um, so I'm glad to hear there's more uh, in common than I even initially thought. And, and I think there is some stuff that needs to be worked out, um, obviously, there. And then some of those lines and some of those definitional things. But I think overall, this was a helpful conversation for me to be a part of. So thank you guys so much for coming on here maybe we'll have to do some more down the road great thank you Seth for inviting us yeah thanks uh, appreciate it yeah we'll see you guys see ya alright well thank you so much for joining us for this spirited dialogue I hope it was helpful um, it's probably got to be part one of many because there's so much to really drill down on there in, in the in the content that the they were going back and forth on so um, but if you don't mind go ahead and um, subscribe to the podcast on Humble or Apple. Give us a review if you don't mind as well. It helps us get the word out there. And just really appreciate y'all taking the time to watch this and, and be with us. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>